You're listening to Enough on His Mind by Philip Ballasher. The wind was still. A musician below his window played a song he couldn't name. Had Mark not been able to remember how the song went after hearing it once, at which point the musician played something else, he would have forgotten it and never put his own words to someone else's song. It was familiar, but he hadn't stayed to hear the musician sing, so he couldn't identify the song through its lyrics. He thought he hummed the song, but what he really did was sing through his teeth. As soon as he went outside, the sun's heat became more than a number on on a thermometer. He moved slowly, like he would if he were tired, to prevent sweating. It would happen eventually, but he could delay it. He put a hand to his back to feel how much he'd sweat. Ever since he could remember, he had made outrageous wishes that, if granted, he would regret. First, he did all he could, he could to solve his problem, whatever it was. Then he wished to do what he couldn't. Now he wanted there to be another ice age. When winter came, he would ask the earth to move a little closer to the sun. He made these wishes out loud, but not loudly, as if talking to a friend right next to him. Reading an article he didn't like, he would say to anyone listening, that the writer should be shot or at least beaten. Hearing a song he liked, he would declare everyone involved the best of what they did, as he had when hearing that musician. That was how he and his friends spent their time, making such claims. Someone tried to get a reaction from, up, from the others, who did as expected. A boy yawned, putting his whole fist in his mouth like a cork to stop himself. Mark yawned in sympathy with the boy, using his flat hand instead. He saw the boy, the boy saw him. Their acknowledgement of each other didn't go beyond this. Mark kept walking, keeping to the little bit of shade the buildings reluctantly gave him. The first time he went somewhere, if it wasn't too dangerous, he liked to throw himself on the kindness of strangers. A couple talked. The restaurant's radio plugged the silence they left for it. They wouldn't do. More things presented themselves for his inspection. He passed the newspaper stand just slowly enough to read the headlines, get angry, and make threats so elaborate he'd need to be more than a wandering lecturer to make good on them, or at least have a very good obedient audience. A man smiled and showed his teeth. Mark looked around to see who it was intended for, but he couldn't find them. He sought shade in a subway. Having no particular place to go, this was as good as the streets above. Better, even. The age of the graffiti on the subway walls and on the trains could be determined by how much of the paint's color remained and by what they said. The new soon covered the old, unless it was particularly impressive, in which case it took a little longer, until the first person with a spray can or marker got over their respect for the work. Once that was done, others felt it was safe to join in and write over it, too. To him, this graffiti was like newspaper headlines. He inspected them accordingly. They showed what was popular among the type of people who put slogans on subway walls, calls for freeing this country and that person, statements about freedom that focused more on rhyme and wordplay than on saying more than the obvious. He willed himself to remember that for later. Mark had no struggle, neither for a cause you could quickly explain, 
nor for an ideal you could talk about for hours and still not really define. Free from want, free from struggle, he could observe what others had written in moments of anger, sadness, joy, or realization, with a neutrality none of them could match or wanted to have. Everything left to the public is a victim of its worst elements. Bathrooms, trains, and universities, he said, looking forward to repeating it to an audience. His hand went to his breast pocket, finding only a pen, no paper. He liked this phrase so much it would be a shame to, to lose it. He wrote it on his arm. This was the next best thing. It was smudge. No, he had to find another way. His pen drew, th drew thin lines. He had no marker. To fatten them, he traced and retraced the letters he made on the subway wall until he could read it. Then he took a photo. The hypocrisy was obvious. He tried to evade it. He didn't have paper. He was criticizing those who did it. He wasn't any worse than they. Better because he knew and said how bad vandalism was. He'd never seen anyone write or spray or otherwise make a mark on public property. Of course, he didn't go out when those sorts of people did those things, wasting time, money, and if his suspicions about spray paint were correct, brain cells, for causes less grounded than his own. When he spoke of a moral decline, you could see it for yourself. There was no need to speak of some great tomorrow, when today had its own problems. His emotions were still at extremes. He dreamt of punishments for these vandals, as he drew a distinction between them and himself. Nothing he came up with was harsh enough. He took some photos of these slogans to show off as a, at his next lecture. His audience wasn't so rich that the subway and its artists were unfamiliar to them, but he could probably get a whole speech out of it. He was on a lecture circuit, yet kept the hours he had had in his previous jobs, even the lunch break. This way, he was free when his friends were, though not all his work hours were spent at his desk. He liked what he did now more. These thoughts came to him whether he lectured or not, and this way he could use them for something. These jobs and the photos he had taken were evidence that he was an educated man with a common touch. All that meant was that he said what his audience thought more eloquently than they could. That's more accusatory, that sounds, and more than it should be. People won't stay if they don't like the speaker. If they do, he thought, they won't say he was lecturing them. His listeners were accustomed to his personality and liked the habits in which he expressed it. They found him charming and wise, an effect that his eccentricities only enhanced. When he shouted about what he'd like to say and do to certain someones, his listeners knew it was a joke, even as he gestured wildly, as if those he spoke of were really there. He seemed to know, too. When his career was just beginning, he felt self-conscious about his name, his clothes, his manners, everything but his work. Being called Mark Evans had seemed ridiculous to him. It confused him when, when others didn't react similarly. He had been very close to asking them about it a number of times, but had always stopped before doing so, believing they would find his fear worse than his name. Should he, like F. Scott Fitzgerald, cut his first name down to its initial and leave the rest as it was? Should he take after T.S. Eliot and cut his middle name down too? At the height of these worries, he had spent an afternoon playing with his name, 
repeating his variations to see what sounded better and what sounded worse. He split them into two categories, better and worse, with a third, in between, for when he wasn't sure. Since then, nothing had changed but his attitude, that and his age. He had dressed older than he had been then, which was now appropriate because his body had caught up with his style. Winning awards had given people the practice they needed to say his name right. Familiarity had also made his manner easier to accept. It was the same with his appearance. First he had seemed too young, now he was as old as he should be. A future lecture he had been planning for quite some time centered on being a public intellectual. He treated the subject with respect. For the first time, he was going to explain just what he was doing and why it was important. His audience already believed it was, but not all could explain why. There's more to it than me complaining for an hour and a half, he would say, as people found their seats in whatever auditorium he would be speaking in. Then he'd wait for laughs. The point, he'd continue, of a public intellectual is to explain to the general public what they and others in their field have achieved as of late. For some, this means progression. For others, like myself, who deal in culture, there really isn't a steady improvement, or even an improvement at any speed, to speak of. Different movements come and go with their adherents following, and no one can really say that the first words ever written are better or worse than whatever won a Pulitzer this year. Well, we have our opinions, but that's all. That was as much of his speech as he could recall. He said it all under his breath, moving his lips to accompany his whispering, moving around as he would while giving the lecture. He promised himself he would finish it this week. If what he wrote wasn't good enough, he'd have his editor go through it again. If he still had doubts, he would use it for this year's essay collection. Some of his essays had won awards, that assured him his lecture would be well-received, even if he had to publish it. In a job like this, you had to be constantly active with essays and opinions and articles and etc. anything. Paranoid of losing some quality you could hardly define, he always wrote at least one essay ahead of schedule, a few more than he needed as a buffer. His subjects ran from the serious, meaning the obviously important, and some parts of the mundane when properly examined, to the absurd, like his complaints about people annotating books with pens and pencils. Had he written fiction, he could have put his opinions in the mouth of one of his characters. But because he didn't, Mark was forced to admit what he thought was important enough to write an essay about. He couldn't make offhand remarks except in interviews. His work was limited to what he had lived through, Fortunately, he could make that last a lifetime. From time to time, he even wrote reviews. He had to be made motivated to do so. Money alone wasn't enough. If a book moved him to joy or to anger, then he'd tell everyone about it. He spoke convincingly. His friends would tell their friends of his opinion, passing it off as their own, and doing just enough to disguise it. He took this sort of printed work as seriously as his lectures. It was important to have a fitting title rather than fall back on Collected Prose, Volume 1, and so on. His reward for this effort was a near-perfect recall of his titles, which he took from things he'd heard or said himself, 
and remembered a week or a month later with a self-impressed feeling of his own intelligence. Before they were published as books, his opinions were put into newspapers. He phrased these articles as provocatively as he could. Once he got into an argument with another writer, all he had to do was respond. Controversy sold, but interest didn't last forever. Like arguments had in person, the longer they went on, the less people cared. Finally, he looked away from the subway wall, not that he had been, really been looking at it while thinking through all this. A man came up opposite him. He was smoking a cigarette, and then he wasn't. Instead, the man had bent over and put his hands on his throat. Mark stopped to lend a hand, pounding one into the man's back and holding him by the stomach with the other. He wondered whether the man was choking on the cigarette or had dropped ash into his throat. Guess you can't walk and smoke at the same time, he said as the man breathed heavily, intending the remark for himself and pleased when he heard the man laugh at the way Mark put his misfortune. Now that the man had recovered and he no longer bent over or hid his face, Mark could see how round and boyish it was. It didn't seem to belong to a man at all. The man thanked him and went. Mark stayed to search for the man's cigarette. It wasn't on the floor. He concluded that the man had swallowed it or lost it to the train tracks. His previous feeling of superiority returned, now with evidence to support it. Mark had a reason to look down upon the great mass of people around him. He had helped that man. They hadn't. He could even criticize the man he had helped for smoking in a subway. Mark didn't smoke and didn't know if doing so here was illegal. If not, it should be. He didn't know what name to put to the difference that separated them besides character. That was what he liked to talk about. It applied to almost everything and made his life easy. His lectures and essays focused on the present and the recent past, which, depending on what was most useful for him at a given time, could be between 10 and 100 years ago. Still, he had a working knowledge of history from Homer to his own books. That was useful when drawing parallels. As we saw during the June Rebellion, he'd say, as if he and his audience had seen it in person and not read about it in books or seen it impersonated on screen. In the same way, he would invoke the name of an author and bring up something they had said, or he'd drop the quote in the middle of his own words and leave it to his audience to tell them apart. Those that could, those that could admired him for knowing great thinkers. Those that couldn't admired him all the more for being a great thinker. He liked to observe people going about their day, which was only possible when he wasn't working. His happiness convinced him to ride the subway without a ticket, but his fear of being found out overcame this by the third stop. Having bought a ticket, he brandished it as if to prove he'd had it all along. Neither the passengers of his old train nor those of the new train he boarded seemed to know or to care either way. He was aware of all these forces directing him, and liked to think this helped him to control them a little. He was so sensitive, how he hated that word, it made him think of weakness, but the word aware escaped him at that moment. To everything around him, that the forces were stronger for him than for others. Shock seemed to really hit him. Joy and anger, too. 
His fear of the ticket-taker had interfered with his senses. Free of that feeling, with barely enough room to uh, to turn his head and see who he was sitting besides, Mark rode the train. Maybe he would sit down one day and describe these sensations as they floated around him like spirits. In a well-lit room, neither hot nor cold, in which nothing happened, he had little to perceive besides the furniture, the light, his own body, and his awareness of himself. The train and its passengers gave him more than that, much more, too much. Some of it was real, some of it, just like spirits, he couldn't perceive, but believed he did. His date of birth and the age of the woman beside him were, to him, equally unchallengeable, though he could prove only one. This awareness of everything soon became more than he could take. He hadn't set out with a destination in mind and got out the same way, not caring where he was except that it wasn't on the train. His habit of explaining to himself what he was doing took up space in his head and remained part of him, like his exaggerations, whether he was alone or with company. To put it one way, he talked to himself, though not out loud. To put it differently, he kept himself busy. In either case, he didn't like noise. There was enough of that in his head. He was always thinking of something new. This habit had gone on for so long that he couldn't stop it. He didn't have to say all that came to mind. No disorder forced him to, but the thoughts came anyway. His awareness gathered material for his lectures, spontaneous impressions and thoughts he consciously assembled with care to prove a point or to disprove a point of another. His exaggerations were how he first expressed what came to him. Then he refined it and earned a living. Even from the bottom of the staircase that led out of the subway, he could see an eerie light that suggested a storm. How quickly the remaining sun went. It seemed a matter of seconds. He decided it had been. Lightning came not as a figure, as a fork or as spears, but as as a flash that came and went and vanished, seeming to be barely there and then to have never been there at all. Again, he decided it was what it seemed. Somewhere a child cried. A woman tried to console it. She succeeded. The child shut up. The whole routine began again when the second flash of lightning came. The time between claps of thunder was regular enough that the sound seemed mechanical, like the clangs of church bells. The child cried, and its mother consoled it each time. Mark observed this from the safety of the subway entrance, though not long enough for the storm to be over. The rain curtained off the topmost step of the staircase. The water ran down the stairs. He stepped back when it reached his shoes. Had he been braver, he would have left the station and found his way home, ducking under trees and other shelter when the rain became too much, and going as far as he could when it let up. Had he been smarter, he would have taken the subway back the way he'd come. He didn't want to turn back yet, so it didn't matter matter how smart or brave he was or wasn't. The water took on the color of whatever made it wet, whatever it made wet. It was orange when it was on the leaves that the wind had swept down the stairs and gray when it was on the station's floor without anything between the two. He picked up one of these leaves, then inspected the symmetry of its veins and its form. 
He put it in his breast pocket, beside his pen, but not before playing with it unselfconsciously, like a child would, letting it fall and flutter, sometimes turning corkscrews, sometimes swaying from right to left and back again, like a pendulum. A comparison came to him, like Jonah and the whale. He realized it didn't fit. Well, he knew what was happening. He didn't need to compare it to anything. The scope of sensations shrank. Rain in front of him, an empty station behind. Walls to his side, a floor below, a ceiling above. He wished for a drought. The sky ignored him. He said it could keep raining, but asked that the clouds please dump all the water they had at once so he could go. His compromise didn't work. He had nothing to bargain with. Fine, I'll wait. I can wait longer than you can pour water. He knew that was true, at least in the sense that he would have to wait, even if he lost patience. He still hadn't found strangers to throw himself upon, but he no longer needed any. He had the smoker he had saved, the vandals whose work he'd observed, and the train passengers whose lives he had deluded himself into believing he knew. A few more walks like this, and his lecture would be complete. He could speak about his own life, how he reflected the crude impressions he got into something coherent. The day he would sit down and figure out how he perceived the world was sooner than he ex had expected. Now fully consumed by his own experience, unwilling and unable to think of anything else, he chose this station as the main metaphor of his lecture, writing rain in front of him and all the rest on the wall, as he had written his quip about the public before. Besides that, he summarized the rest of his thought in notes only he would understand. There wasn't enough wall for full sentences. He wasn't sure how being trapped in a station by rain explained anything. But the metaphor was important. He would work backwards to find out how. Mark had grown so accustomed to the rain that he relied on secondary signs to check whether it was still there the water coming down from the stairs in little trickles and in steady drops from the mouth of the station. Only when they were gone did he put his hand out and find that the rain had stopped. Then he left the station. He wandered for a few more hours, looking for something to punctuate his journey, like another person to help or more material for his lecture. People passed by, but they were as plain as everything else he saw. Not what he was looking for, not that he knew that uh, what that was. I'll know it when I see it, he thought, uh, though he didn't know where to look. Though the streets were less crowded and quieter than the, uh, than the subway had been, even they eventually tired him out. Maybe that was why they tired him out, that and the smell of wet streets. The subway had been too much for him. These streets were too little. He could go no further. His mind, his legs, and the place itself uh, had all been exhausted. He returned home slower than he'd left it, meeting people on his way back, but not the yawning boy or the musician. The things he encountered, rain wrinkles posters, trash he had to step over or else go around and walk on the road, meant nothing to him except obstacles between him and his destination. His head was full and could get no fuller. 
He noticed a pile of books laying on top of each other, as if someone had stacked them and then pushed the tower over. He let the phrase fall where it may, no longer caring if he forgot it. He treated people with the same selfishness, brushing them aside with his elbows. Once he was at his desk, the thoughts that had emerged from his adventure, hanging above him without structure, came down on the pages of his notebook. He put the slogans he had seen as quotes beside each other, and left them to take form on their own. Rather than following one thought wherever it might go, he had strained first to perceive as much as he could, and now that he had done that, he tried to connect his thoughts and impressions. There was no relation between them, or if there was, it was too weak for him to find. His awareness of the sensations around him lessened just like he predicted. Now undisturbed, he could focus on explaining what he had felt and thought. He could elaborate on concrete positions, like that bit about the public, but as for the reined-in subway station, his many attempts brought forth nothing of use. When he had nothing in mind as a starting point, his solution was to write anyway, and later sort the good from the bad. In this case, he couldn't tell the one from the other. The image had seemed significant, but he still didn't know what to say about it. Just as he'd never before cared about his awareness of what he perceived, he hadn't seriously asked why this or that thought came to him. The reason for Jonah and the whale was clear, but why the station? He set that aside for now. Within a couple of couple days of constant work, with some breaks in between, Mark was close to fulfilling his promise to himself, but not quite finished. The rainy station was all that was left. Trapped just like I was then, he thought. Maybe the solution was to wait. He did. If the answer was a blank piece of paper, he had it. Rather than be satisfied, he went out in search of something he could say to an audience. Nothing he encountered had the same feeling as that station. Finding it again was difficult, but not impossible. Seeing the words he had written in pen proved it could be done. He chose a day when rain was likely, but even this recreation of the circumstances brought him no closer. Frustrated, he kicked a wall, expecting an echo he didn't get. Then he left, embarrassed at his failure to understand what he had felt, and at his behavior. After thinking about it for so long, he had lost track of the feeling he was trying to describe. Something badly written can be refined, but looking through his notes, there didn't seem to be anything that even approached what the station had meant to him. He was left with this. The station seemed significant, like Jonah and the whale. He felt his deadline approach, and sighed at how little his grand feeling had amounted to. It occurred to him that he didn't need to explain something that wasn't there. The lecture was about his work, so he'd talk about his methods. He wrote this comparison, some work forwards from one statement to the next. He began with impressions and worked backwards to understand why he felt that way. He still didn't understand that one was better than the other, but could halfway admit to failure by writing that some things, and I quote, will seem significant and you won't understand why. It may take a few days or months or years, if it ever happens. These feelings are the comings and goings of your heart, which may be at high tide one minute and recede the minute after. He knew he would revise this part, even as he wrote it, 
but close was better than nothing. Quote, they will attach themselves to objects, people, and places, and events for reasons sometimes explicable and sometimes not. End quote. Having outlined the framework he'd be using, Mark went over why he invented it, or rather discovered it. But that's a distinction I'll leave it to you to debate, he said, smiling to no one, stopping between paragraphs to write down what he'd just said. He stood up and spoke to the window in his study. It was so clean he could talk to himself. Whether you reviewed what others wrote or you wrote and then read reviews, he smiled as stupidly as he would when saying this at the actual lecture, you didn't know how they got there. Most people don't think to tell you they believe it's not important that others work in the same way. He showed the photos he had taken of the graffiti and of his own quotes, explaining what each meant and then why he couldn't draw meaning from the station in the same way, though he had tried so hard to do so. This last part was said as a confession. The solution to his stubbornness was to admit his failure, first to himself and then to them, so that they could learn his lesson without needing to repeat his mistake. He hung on this last sentence as if waiting for applause, but he was thinking of what to say next. The strain was visible. Then he relaxed, and it wasn't. He was so happy about finishing his speech that it took him less time than usual to rewrite it exactly as he wanted. He had thought of most of it while practicing. This happiness, in turn, made him almost forget about giving it to his editor to look over. It got through her with minimal fuss. If she had insisted it wasn't good enough to be a lecture, the offhand remarks he had practiced would have become part of the speech. He had the confidence to let that happen, if need be. To get to the college he was engaged to speak at, he took the subway from the very station he had tried to describe. After the difficult work of finishing his essay, he looked at it in a new light. Of course, the sun was shining through the windows. God damn, he said, smiling at the world's trickery even as he said it, trying to keep his spirits down in accordance to with how he wanted to feel. If he'd had the time, he would have spent an hour trying and failing to capture this feeling. He'd have better luck if he were a painter, or rather, he wouldn't need to explain. Just paint the scene and leave it up to his audience to figure out. As he got on his train, he remembered the leaf he had in his breast pocket and took it out. It, too, had lost whatever magic it had once held. He delivered his lecture as planned. The audience didn't all laugh and clap when he gave them the opportunity, but enough did that he wasn't embarrassed. He had practiced without accounting for interruptions, but once he was actually speaking to his audience, who all listened politely, the whole event was over sooner than he expected. Some students stayed to ask questions. Others told him how right he was. The rest didn't have the confidence of his more established critics, who wrote reviews of his work in newspapers and magazines. He gave compliments freely, making the students he singled out and those next to them blush. Meanwhile, he wrote their conversation down as a rough sketch of his next lecture. They referred to him as Dr. Professor Evans, as the dean of the college had when introducing him, though they left out our distinguished speaker. 
Professor Dr. Evans said he preferred to be called Mark, as everyone else in his life called him. They apologized. Mark said they had nothing to apologize for. To keep the conversation going, he brought, the, he brought up something from his lecture and asked for their thoughts. Happy to put their mistake behind them, they answered. He took notes. He showed his notes to the students who inspired him and asked them for their names. He talked excitedly, which only embarrassed them further and made them look away from his shining eyes. Once he had said his met methods aloud, they became more concrete to him. Before making them public, they had been like invisible river channels through which his thought had flowed. Now he saw the channels, which took some of the mystery away, but not all. He wasn't sure whether this was good or bad for his career or his personal life. He had time to think about that and also the means to distract himself from the question. He concentrated on his method, not as before with the station trying to make meaning where there wasn't any, where his feelings came and went without any reason he could explain, but instead judging the effect it had on his attempt to prepare his next lecture. It was to be about how your perception shifted with age. He credited the boy, everyone younger than him was a boy, in the polo shirt beside him with the idea, and credited himself with developing it beyond that stage, writing himself a reminder to announce their respective parts when he held his lecture. Nobody would know otherwise, even if he printed his name and the boys in equal size beside each other, in the book it would be published in a few years from now. Miraculously, the boy was also named Mark Evans. He had inherited his last name from his mother, unlike the older Evans, who had taken it from his father. That boy was the only one to address him without any embarrassment. Mark gave him his email, tapping him on the shoulder, uh, rather than saying his name. Uh, the boy promised to write often. He would, really. Uh, really, he hadn't done much. It wasn't so much what he'd said as what he was. Younger, full of potential. Mark couldn't have said that. It would have hurt the boy to know how little his contribution was and confused him with feelings on aging beyond his years. Let him discover this fear by himself. It wasn't vanity, either. Mark thought he looked better now than as a boy, and because of his self-confidence, others seemed to agree. This routine of lecturing and publishing was what his life would be, be until he grew tired of it, or likelier, died. He had a title in mind, A Life of Questions. The gimmick for this would be framing it around stages of life. He had no children, nor anyone closer than a friend or a colleague. If he was to answer questions others, from infant to elder, didn't think to ask and couldn't hope to answer, he first had to find them. The most fundamental of these questions was what they were going through. Glimpses of children at play reminded him of doing the same at their age. Looking in the mirror reminded him of how old he was. If, if this lecture was to be about more than himself, he needed to draw from his own past and the presence of others. Both were still out of his reach. To get something done, he outlined what stages of life he would write about and listed what questions they might ask themselves. At first, there were too many to answer. 
If it were a lecture, it would need to be a series. He wished life were simpler, and when writing the, his other lecture, it had been. He had many false starts. The problem is, he would begin, and then he'd say something different each time. Life was too much for him. In the spirit of a new beginning, he wrote his categories down again and added a question that had to do with each stage. The question of a baby was, what is the world? A boy and a man ask what their place in it is, answering it in different ways. Some claiming to be able to answer for others as well as themselves. Last, an old man might ask himself if he had answered to correctly. Mark modeled this person on himself. He supposed women asked themselves the same questions. The word fiction never occurred to him, but that's what it was. He had to invent lives he couldn't have lived and describe feelings he couldn't remember or had never felt. He thought of the boy, Mark Evans Jr., as he had taken to calling him, then thought of how he himself had been as a student, out of step with his neatly laid out structure, an old soul as some would like to joke. For a moment, he considered calling the boy, but decided against it. He should be able to write without help, and who knew if the kid could even help him. Mark met with his editor the following week to discuss the draft he had completed. Before he explained that the idea was still taking form, she asked whether it wouldn't be better to think it over before coming to her. If he didn't quite know what the essay was about yet, how could she help? He agreed. His study of people continued. He took guidance from the questions he had set up, watching how children discovered the world, paying more attention to the short conversations he he had with children who approached him than whoever he spoke with did. Their eyes widened, and Mark wondered what they were realizing. He could afford to be more direct with adults, though he rarely was. When his research was over, he had these observations of children and the confession of his colleagues, which focused on past mistakes, unfulfilled ambitions, and their mental and physical decline, which would that would in future make it difficult to fill other, fulfill other ambitions. Besides that, there were his opinions on what he had gathered. Like before with the train station, he was left to connect his loose material, though in this case he knew what questions to answer and how to do it. The meaning of the station varied so much from person to person, and even from day to day. In rain, it meant frustration in a way he alone understood. Others might wish for different weather, but he had wanted to know what he felt. The relief the sun had given him on the day of his lecture was just as private. The questions he now had before him were clear. Behind each of them were feelings many had tried to express by asking what they were missing. Babies knew nothing about the world and lacked the words and the mood to complain. To find something new was all they needed. Sometimes what they already knew could entertain them for hours. Men and women, whatever their age, wondered in many small ways what their place in this world was, or else asked themselves the full question directly. When they were young, the question was put as a choice that was made every day. When they were older, they asked with more melancholy and an understanding that it may be too late to change. Such thoughts came to him from time to time, and soon he realized 
that he couldn't answer any of the questions he had written. What he could do was explain how one person might approach them. This is how he got closer and closer to fiction, never purposefully inventing, but doing so gradually and by accident. The person he made to answer his questions wasn't him exactly. Mark hadn't given him a name yet, but he knew it wouldn't be his own. His personality was a cobbling of Mark's thoughts and the thoughts of others, some of which Mark heard in person, some he had read in a book. Mark expressed these thoughts in a variety of moods, which led to, a di to different styles, some frustrated and short, others happy, long, and babbling. He took the leaf, by now, by now dry and beginning to brown, out of his breast pocket and set it carefully on his desk. It had survived the jostling of the past week when he had forgotten it was there. It was so light. How could he have remembered it except by chance recalling the past? He treated this like a collector treats a rare find, something delicate, maybe even more so with the time spent preserving it. It had curled up into itself. If he let it fall now, something he would never allow to happen, it would land on the floor with a clack. He finished his essays over the next couple months, going out for conversation like he had gone out before for sights to describe and to think about. His friends knew what he did and thought him as lucky as he thought himself. He told them what he was working on. They weren't much help, though they tried to be. He didn't begrudge them that. When they tried to explain their thoughts, they were honest, though not always accurate. After some number of failed attempts to explain, they laughed at themselves and admitted it was hard. Mark had to work out what they meant. They tried to make sure he didn't have to work so hard. Not everyone felt the unease he had assumed of them. Some could say they were happy and mean it. I don't really think there's such a thing as your place, one man said, or soulmates or any of that business. But if it, if it exists, I'm there. I've got it. As for his approach of fiction, Mark wasn't sure how to ask, so he didn't. All that was left was the ending. He took a blank page in hand and wrote, This is intended as an outline of the questions many have asked themselves. If they have never occurred to you, be thankful. Some don't realize they're missing something until they've found it. Others don't realize there are answers, believing that life is what you make of it. That's true, but what to make of it? This should give you guidance. Mark didn't know what to make of this paragraph, writing by instinct and sound instead of reason and argument. When he was done, he let the words sit there for a minute. He sent it all to his editor. I couldn't write a line, he said, speaking his laziness into existence. Wish I could. That was the most improbable wish he had made this year. That was Enough on His Mind by Philip Balasher. If you would like to read along to the actual story, there is a link uh, to it in the description of this video. And as always, remember to share, like, and subscribe.